0: section of the Sermon on the Mount. You think about, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount since last July 5th, just in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's been incredible. And I've been wanting it to end for a long time now, but today we finally get it to the end, going bit by bit, sometimes word by word or passage by passage. But, I, but one of the things that I hope that you see is Jesus very much on purpose, not in randomness, was actually speaking these very words for his people in order for them to understand the gospel that he's going to provide them. If you think about the sermon as a unit, so when I say the sermon, I mean the sermon on the mount, you think of it as a unit, you could draw three or four circular rings expanding outwards. We're like the middle of a bullseye would be the Lord's Prayer. And then there's a beginning and end that forms another ring. And here we're coming to the end of one of those inner rings. And we can see the brilliance of Jesus' own teaching here at verse 12, where we have a dramatic conclusion to this end of, of what I'm going to call a big ring. The, the obvious link of the unit as a whole. So we've talked about a couple of times a top and a tail, seeing the, the literature as having a top and a tail of showing kind of beginning and end points, but also an argument that's been forming. And if you will, you can go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and you see the top. And then our passage today is going to be the tail. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is teaching from the tale of this argument in verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus saw the crowd briefly where he unpacked the law and then hitched who he is to that law. So that the listeners would have understood what we have in the scriptures as the law and the prophets. And what Jesus so tremendously and almost scandalously does is say that he is the very fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So he doesn't do away with the law and the prophets. He doesn't try to diminish them in any sort of pattern or way. But he says that all the law and the prophets are talking about are actually coming from me or being fulfilled in me. And then he says in chapter 5 verse 18 chapter 5, verse 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. And then we have in our passage, therefore, or so, you might have in your translation, the same connecting adverb, like two pegs where teaching holds together. If you've ever hanged your clothes outside for them to to dry, you hang one end of the string to a pole and then another end and you hang all these clothes in the middle. This is much of what Jesus' is teaching is here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not something nice on the back end of so many commands we see of what is called the golden rule. It's not just something nice that he tallies up so that he can make a conclusion and go on to something else, but it's something so significant to point at what Jesus is not only saying but who he is altogether. So Jesus, think of all who Jesus is. Think of all that you know of Jesus to be. Think of all that that is written about who Jesus is in his word. He's the great fulfiller of God's grace. That's who Jesus is and what his word says to us. He is the great fulfiller of all of God's grace. He's the fulfillment of our need. He's the centerpiece of all of God's revelation. And then he places himself at the centerpiece of that creation. So it says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. The prophets' purpose in the Old Testament, you might Not read the Old Testament that much or you might skip over the prophets because they're either very large or very minor or you don't really know what they're talking about. But what the the point and the purpose of the Old Testament prophets were was to point forward to a coming fulfillment where God's justice would have been exemplified. Or the laws, you think about the laws, all the lists of laws that you overlook, or maybe you're reading the Bible through a year and you skip over what you're supposed to read and maybe the end of January or in February, you think of what the law is in the Old Testament. The laws demand in the Old Testament, it longs for perfection and holiness. So you have the prophets aiming for God's fulfillment to come, and the law is demanding holiness and perfection. And then Matthew, in his work, would later record that the prophets and the law prophesied for a Messiah and tell John. So after John, there were no more prophets. And it's likely, not that they were silent, not in, the, not in their importance, but in, rather instead of their attention, because their fulfillment arrived on the scene where Jesus has arrived for us to understand. So if any of you have ever been used to maybe a Broadway play or a production at a school, there are uses of lights. So the stage stays the same, the backdrop stays the same, all one or two hours of a high school performance or a college performance. But, but the way that they use lights in an auditorium like this is to, to paint our focus on something specific. So here we have our focus going from the law and the prophets, and it's not that they go away in importance of what they're teaching, but now it seems like this spotlight is on the very person of Jesus all together. And what Jesus does is that he teaches all these listeners to understand and know the law and the prophets because they are talking about himself. And what Matthew has been doing for several chapters is setting before us Jesus' relation to and use of the very law that we have in the Old Testament. It's clear that Jesus here endorses the law, it's clear that he sets a vision for his own followers to go even deeper than the law. Not just using the law practically, but understanding the real heart of the law. Taking all of our relational and spiritual issues to our heart's base and our heart's real intention. So the Sermon on the Mount is much more than an ethical decree. It's much more than if you obey this like a fortune cookie, then you'll just have a better day. It's more than a set of rules or a guide for the Christian's life. It's a vision of how you and I are to live in light of the Messiah. The Sermon on the Mount, we've said it before, is for Christians, for us to live a Christian life and understanding the gospel more fully of what Jesus has given to us. The law and the prophets were first heralds, but are now witnesses to the climax of God's purpose in Jesus as he introduces, think about this, as Jesus introduces to us, as he inaugurates to us the very kingdom of heaven. Jesus shows up on the scene and inaugurates, I think about the power of that, and initiates the very kingdom of heaven. And within the kingdom of heaven, we have a new relationship with God that transcends mere keeping of rules. Because in our place, rules have been kept on our behalf, where now we live, we obey, we ascend to righteousness, not out of fear, but love. Not out of damnation, but now out of desire. We're called, it says in chapter 5, verse 48, to be perfect because God is perfect and we bear his image. And he sent his son to show us perfection, to show us righteousness. But not only that, in our imperfection, as we have seen week after week after week, if this is what the law demands, I look at my own heart, I see my own self as imperfect, revealing itself again and again. He will assume our place, our imperfect place at the true altar. And fully demonstrate to us the love that we are to have for the Father and our own neighbor. So Jesus fulfills the law, not giving a new law or a new religion, but causes a new relationship with God that is what Jesus came to achieve. And then he tells us to do unto others as we would have them do to us. Think of the brilliance of all of Jesus' argument. Our text this morning is the end or the high point in many ways and the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. It defines our pursuit. It outlines God's grace. It demonstrates how amazing and unique God's kingdom is because he is who he says he is, but then he says that we should live in light of his glory in his grace and his perfection. It defines our pursuit. So I want you to see in this text the context of what is called the golden rule, I want you to see the command that this has in your life and also the command that it has on its own. And then I want you to consider some overwhelming and life-altering consideration and applications. So we have first the context of this passage. So many people take what is called the golden rule completely out of context and use it for their own good or to win an argument. Or maybe even a godly, good, ethical pursuit. But they take it out of context. So what is the context? The big context of this passage, if you're following on an outline, number one, the big context of this passage is us seeing the standard that Jesus has set out now for several chapters. And the natural response of us responding to what Jesus said for several chapters is who, if anyone, can live up to this standard? And he answers that. In the immediate context, he answers that we should ask. We should seek. We should knock. That when we feel ourselves to be so absolutely helpless in our own circumstances, we have this promise that there's a God who is called Father, Father, Father. Again and again and again in our word, there is a God who is our Father who gives good gifts to his children. Therefore, if he is who he says he is, we have to ask. We can seek. We should knock. And now it's as if Jesus says, Now receive the good things of God's grace, therefore you must be gracious to your fellow man. Would you receive good things from God, therefore do right things to others? In effect, verse 12 in its context is the summary of a Christian's life within the gospel. We have received so much from God, we have received everything we need from God. And in turn, we should be graceful to other people in their own walks or lives. This is the relational summary of the law and the prophets he's hanging this teaching on us almost like if he could make it in such simple form so maybe some of you have listened to your spouse describe something and maybe you've said something like okay land the plane or okay sum it up or okay if you could if you could say all that in one sentence what would it be or for some of you who have kids Kids are by far the worst storytellers of all time. You have no idea what's happening. They don't even know what's happening. They're just saying stuff. And if all this brilliance, all this command of the text that Jesus has, it's almost like he is anticipating all of our minds being so full of so much information, he sums it up by saying, this is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. But look more precisely in context of verse 12 and understand the context here. Your version may say, therefore or so. Anytime you find a therefore or so, you've got to ask yourself, why is that there? Why is the so or the therefore there? Now, linguistically, this is categorized as an inference or an implication. There's an argument that has an implication at the end, a conclusion to a statement or event. If it's raining outside, or it's raining outside, so I went inside. It was sunny outside, so I went and played, right? So, whenever our Lord tells us, here in verse 12, it's not isolated or cut off from the things around it. When you think about verse 12. This isn't brilliant here, but verse 12 comes right after verse 11. And you think about verse 11 here. What does verse 11 say? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, could give things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. This is the law and the prophets. The gospel isn't just do good. In fact, the gospel at all isn't do good and then God will love you or do good and then get into heaven or do good and good things will be done to you. But rather, the gospel, in summary, is good has been done to you through the person of Jesus. Think about the goodness that God has given to us in Christ and that the spirit that the Father and Christ sent to us Think about when you think about the totality of all that's been done for you. Salvation has been provided to you. Help when you feel alone or isolated from anyone around you. When you feel like you're walking in this life with circumstances that no one will understand or no one will grasp. Or you feel isolated or depressed like the psalmist. The help that has been given to you by the Spirit. Or you think about what has been offered to you as the church, the fellowship of the saints, where we are marching towards heaven together, not in isolation, building one another up in faith and in joy. Or you think about the assurance that has been provided to you from God, where, where, the, where the Spirit seals you in truth, also in practice, and the glory that is awaiting you. All that God has been given to you, we're immediately struck by the principle with the truth that our relationship with god ought to set the standard for our relationships with anyone around us if all of that is true then the rest of our relational lives have to be more significant and different see from the scripture where outside of this text really takes root our lord joins together a a vertical pursuit and a horizontal relationship with those. So maybe you've heard it said in different places. I feel like I always heard it said. I can't. You have to to work on your vertical relationship with God, and you also have to work on your horizontal relationships with others. What Jesus does, that's a natural way to view anything. That could be the case in any religion or any cult or anything. What Jesus does is he actually merges those together. That because your vertical relationship has to be a certain way, it actually dictates how your horizontal relationship is. You can't separate them. You can't just work on one and not it have uh, relational effects on the other or work on the other and have it not relational effects on the vertical. And we see this in other parts of the scripture too. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Isaiah. Turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, we see from outside of our particular text where this is also a principle, where Jesus has merged together this idea of our vertical and horizontal pursuit. That's not something that should be new to the listeners of God's great covenant. In Isaiah chapter 1, God tells his people that he's tired of their praying. Think about that. You ever thought God would tell you that? I'm actually tired of your praying. Where in fact, he says he wants them to stop praying until they do something with their own relationships. They thought regardless of what they did to others, as long as they came into the temple and sacrificed and offered loud prayers to God, they'd be okay. But look at what God says in verse 15 of Isaiah chapter 1. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves make yourselves clean remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes cease to do evil learn to do good seek justice correct oppression bring justice to the fatherless plead the widow's cause God says if you disregard others I don't want your prayers in effect in this passage because if someone belongs to God they'll live different within his kingdom's care And he said that when they repent and adjust, in these people's case, when they repent or when they adjust their lives, then come back to him. Now for us, why might you not be receiving God's blessing in worship? Why are you not the person in the Beatitudes that we all aim to be, that has been told to us to be? Why are you not walking like you should be walking, even though you know how to walk? Why are you not free from the nagging, anxious heart? Could it be that God is saying to you, I don't want your heart's prayer until it's applied through your hands? If, if, if it doesn't make sense in your mind to where it overtakes your relational effect, then maybe, maybe you really don't understand or grasp the gospel. Maybe you don't understand God's grace to where you then look out on someone else and see them as anything other than needing his grace. Now, that's a little bit from the Old Testament. We could go to multiple passages where this is quoted from directly in Matthew uh, chapter 7. But I want to go to a New Testament passage. Go to Mark 11. So if you're not used to the Bible, we were in Mark, or we were in Matthew, and just go over one book to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, remember what you're trying to grasp, that your horizontal relationship is actually fastened to your vertical relationship with God. If God is your vertical relationship and others are your horizontal relationship, they can't be separated to really understand what the vertical relationship is all about. Go to Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Mark 11, verse 24. It says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, the next word there, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you. See what he does there? It's a tremendous promise about your prayer life, your prayer in faith. What you'll receive there, what you are praying for and what is promised that you'll receive. But the Lord says that you cannot do that in full if you don't take into account your own horizontal relationships with other people. When you stand seeking to call out in faith to God, be sure that your horizontal relationships are acted out in the same manner that you wish to receive vertical mercy. So that's the immediate context and a little bit more remote context going all the way back to the Old Testament, and New Testament, and then we come again to Matthew chapter 7 verse 12. Within the sermon, he's told us how to act towards him, how to act towards others, how we're to be generous and merciful, how we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, how to worship him in spirit and in truth, how not to live hypocritically. And so in sum, how are we to do all these things? It's like Jesus gives us All of the nutshell, he says that we are to live righteously that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees so that whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. From here, we can know if we're walking within the gospel. Uh, Just an immediate application here is if it becomes difficult for you to love people the way that this is calling you to love people, the real problem may be your understanding of the gospel altogether. It may not be them at all. The problem might be you and your relationship with God, your understanding of mercy, your understanding of grace. You've probably heard the quip little saying, For forgiven people are forgiving people. And if you're an unforgiving person to someone else, do you really grasp what it means to be forgiven by God from your sins? And we've seen again and again in the sermon how deep our sins are. So that's the the context of the passage. And I want you to see the command of this text. Now, for 400 years, this passage and other corresponding passages in the New Testament has been known as the golden rule. Though used regularly in Christian literature, I couldn't find out who originally used it. It kind of showed up about 400 years ago. But even for non-Christians, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the real faith that they say Christians ought to have, the golden rule. This is what they... They call out to us and say, you're not living like Christians because you're not even doing this. This is the faith that we also say we subscribe to. The golden rule is so significant, in fact, that it's not even relegated to Christianity exclusively. All the other religions have stuff like this. Old ancient religions have little phrases that are much like this. And in fact, there are just normal rules and patterns to every society that are just normal. You know, it's, In every society, it's not okay to steal. In every society, it's not okay to murder people. In every society, rape is not okay. In every society, this kind of rule happens. Do something to someone else as you would have them do to you, but we still construe it a little bit. The problem with the golden rule is that it's usually quoted totally out of context as a piece of moral legislation. But the Sermon on the Mount is not, nor is this verse, moral legislation. Sinclair Ferguson precisely describes the thrust of the sermon. In this verse, when he says, this is Jesus teaching us what the kingdom of God does when it invades a community or invades an individual. I love that. This teaching shows us what God does when his teaching invades our hearts. That's why my sermon isn't called the golden rule, but the golden vision. This verse and the verses before it has Jesus teaching us what the kingdom does when it invades our hearts. It changes our hearts, not only toward him because he regenerated our hearts, but it also changed our hearts' affections towards other people that we may have previously thought of as less than us or more than us, when in reality we're all sinners and needing God's grace. We need to hear again and again that the gospel draws us to, that God draws us to himself through the gospel, changes us from the inside out, and then sends us out, now changed people for his own glory. Except that you and I are naturally Legalistic people. We naturally think we have to earn God's love so that he'll love us. Or we naturally think we have to earn other people's love, then we will love them. We are natural legalists. Legalism is law that's detached from God's grace. Uh, It's a commandment detached from God's gospel. That's why legalism, which is exclusive law or command, never saves anyone. And in fact, maybe some of you who grew up in a legalistic household... It makes you really miserable, this idea of everything is about rules and no grace. Not that they're detached from each other, but oh, things that we've remembered again and again of how Matthew is showing us a pattern that we see in the Old Testament, that the Israelites were brought from their bondage through the sea and then given God's love and rule. And so many times we try to do that in reverse, that if we just follow the rules, then he'll deliver us from bondage. But in fact, by doing that, we actually place ourselves back in bondage altogether. So this verse is Jesus' exposition of how the gospel works out in the life of God's people. Now, when I say that this verse is a gospel verse, you might go, uh, Jesus literally says that this is an outflow of the law and the prophets. How can the law, which... This attaches itself to not be legalistic. How can a law not be legalistic? It's a great question. It's an obvious question. It's a good question. And the answer is because the law is actually gospel-centered altogether. Now, what I mean by that, if you think about the law in Exodus 20, think of the law or the center of the law, the deliverance of God's people from bondage. How does God speak to his people there? Does he say, you do this and you do that and then do those things and then I will deliver you? No. He says, I have done. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and bondage. And he spoke to his initiated of his initiated grace toward them and then says, now live according to the grace from me that has been demonstrated to you. As I have done so mercifully and gracefully toward you, now go and do likewise. You see how there's gospel there. You see how the sermon that Jesus has is for believers, not just to fully understand so that we may live more righteously, but also the more we understand it, it doesn't the brightness of God's gospel just show up in our hearts? Are we, are we just more amazed where we sing songs like we did earlier or hear other people pray or pray with other people? Doesn't that become so much sweeter when we truly understand that these laws and prophets and the command that God has given us? Another way is not just believing in the intention of the golden rule but we also have to understand how we can be entrapped by messing up some of the words in the golden rule you might say uh, the golden rule is those who have the gold make the rules right we've all done that on the playground right if I have the ball then I'm the first captain and I can pick whoever I want on my team and you might say that I should do to others what I want them to do to me what about me Take it up a notch. Let's do to others what I'd like them to do to me. That's the truth of how people operate in our own day. It's all about my truth or my experience or my want or my self-love, my elevation of my own self. It seems like I heard this all the time in elementary school in the early 90s by teachers who would have been trained in the early 80s that the most important thing is that you love yourself. If you don't love yourself, they said, no one else will love you. And I'd come home and I'd say that. My parents are very nicely to a seven-year-old and say, it's not really the gospel, (laughs) right? If people loved you the way that you loved yourself, no one would actually love you. And if people loved you, think about it. If people loved me the way that I loved myself, no one would share the gospel with me. We have to remember where we are on what you would call the sin spectrum before God's grace. We were not out searching for heaven just knocking on every door, going, where's the crystal city? You know, we have to remember our own heart's intention. And when Jesus transforms that, we think about something and go, I don't want someone to do to me what I would do to me. I don't don't trust my own heart's desire. We see that all over the Psalms. I want them to do to me what I now, as a transformed believer, would want to do to them. Go to Matthew chapter 22. Verse 40, Matthew 22, several pages over to your right. If you're unfamiliar with the text, Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. Matthew 22, verse 40. Matthew 22, verse 40, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is asked, what is the great commandment? And he says to them, He's approached by a lawyer, teacher. What is the great commandment of the law? And he says to them in verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. We see this connection here of verse 40, going back to our own text in chapter 7. We see the connection there of not only this passage, but also what this passage is talking about, the, the greatest commandment there going back to Deuteronomy 6, and the second commandment going back to Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. In other words, loving your neighbor as yourself and doing to someone as you'd have them do to you, mutually explain one another. The word, though, for love, to kind of heighten our understanding of what does it mean to do something for someone else that I would have them do for me, what is that meaning? It's more explained cross-reference-wise in this particular chapter and passage. The idea of love here is one of self-denial. To truly love someone, you have to show them self-denial. You have to deny yourself. That's what it means to love them. So when Jesus says to do something to someone else as you'd want them to do to you or love your neighbor, it's not selfish, but it's self-denial. Loving yourself is not the golden vision, nor the Sermon on the Mount. If people loved you according to how you loved yourself, no one would love you altogether because you wouldn't want it and you don't deserve it. You wouldn't want someone saving you. You wouldn't want someone telling you abruptly the gospel message altogether. You wouldn't see yourself as the root issue with a heart problem. You see how drastic this is. And this is so many of your own testimonies. Living your life however you wanted. Someone abruptly stopped you dead in your tracks and told you something incredibly offensive. You're a sinner. And they said it was good news. (laughs) You think about that. Hey, I got some good news for you you're a terrible person. But in understanding the gospel, you go, I am a terrible person. And they explain God's love to you through sending his son who would live in your place, live on your own account, die in your place. And then he says, go and do likewise. Now, here's why I'm on this random tangent. Talking about how terrible we all are. And I think it helps explain the command of this text. The thing that provides the fuel and the energy and the drive to obey these commandments of the sermon in this verse in particular. The thing that enables our obedience to Christ's command is not that I love myself or even love other people. But instead the reality that I know myself has been loved by God in Jesus Christ. That's the key in the command of this text seeing that yourself has been loved not by them, not by you, but by him who came and died in your place. The key to this text is this, that it's the grace given to us that empowers us to be gracious to others because grace given to us then empowers us to respond in righteous obedience. This is what separates Christianity from anything else. A group of Christians who will actively seek to deny themselves for the sake of others. And why would he do that? Why would they seek to constantly deny themselves? Are they, are they sad people? You know, are, are they wimps? You know, are they just little passive pansies or something, little, little people? No, their motivation of brotherly self-denial is a reaction to the self-denial, the self-denying sacrifice of our Savior Christ Jesus. He's the one who's caused us to say, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And understand the gravity of this command. You, you have to, to understand the real gravity of this text. Like anyone who has seen a movie again and again, you almost want to shout out at the character, you know, it's okay, the aliens won't win. You know, Independence Day reference there. You want to shout out of what's actually going to happen. To understand the real gravity of this command, see the words in a linear relationship to the cross where Jesus would be hung. See this chapter 7 as coming before the account of what Jesus will do for his people. Our text, though fully explained and understood to the original hearers, would be put on full display very soon in their own lives. They wouldn't understand this even if it may, was made as obvious as possible to them. But before them will come a time where the speaker of this text, Jesus himself, will treat them in a certain way. He will do for them what they wouldn't do or couldn't do for themselves. He would do for them not what they asked but completely needed. He would die on the cross in order to satisfy the wrath that God must have against their sin. And he will serve as a propitiation by giving himself over, paying the penalty for their sin as their substitute and atoning for their sin. Them seeing themselves as the reason that he is on the cross should be the fuel for them to receive such a simple blessing from him in verse 12. Now go and do likewise. Treat other people as you would have them treat to you. And if they would just remember, and if I would just remember, how I was treated by the Son of God, then it should make it so much easier to go to the neighbor, to confront someone in their sin, to come up for someone and say, I want to pray with you right here out loud. I want to serve in this way. On and on and on. We see how to understand the gravity of the horizontal relationship. If we keep our eyes on the vertical one, the horizontal one becomes so easy. So that's the command of this text, and it seems to have so much. I want to briefly give you some considerations. So within the context, and seeing this as a command for Christians within our context, gospel-driven lives, I think there are several things for us to consider. And I found in a commentary this week, 18 things for us to consider. And I'll, no, no, don't, no noises, please. I'll briefly go through them. We'll rip them off. You don't have to write them down. If you want them, I'll email them to you later. But a, but a writer named Charles Wood gave, gives us 18 things of applying this particular text. Notice how plain this vision is. There's no room for confusion here plain it is for us. Notice notice how broad it is. The word whatever you wish is told to us. It leaves nothing out. Whatever you wish leaves nothing out. Notice how reasonable and practical this this work is of of loving people the way we would need them or want them to love us. This isn't a supernatural event. The supernatural event has already happened where God has redeemed your heart and summoned you to himself, brought you from hell and placed you in heaven. The, The easy part, the practical part, The reasonable part part is to do unto others. But also notice that it covers all action and inaction. All action and inaction. It covers judgments. I must not judge others more harshly than I would want them to judge me. It covers my speech, how I talk about someone or to someone or want to talk about someone. But it also covers our general conduct, what it would practically or physically do. And it also is very difficult It's very difficult because we are reactive people. We are not active people. You and I react to things very well. It is hard for us to go out and do something on our own just by our very nature. And just as an aside, all those other ancient cultures that might have, or modern cultures, that might have something like the golden rule in their religious base, all of those, you can look at them later, all of them are all stated in the negative. When someone does something to you, and here the gospel is initiating grace. You didn't do anything, and then God invaded your life. Those people may have not done anything but invade their lives in grace. It's very difficult because we're reactive. It's also very difficult because it goes against the nature or the grain of our society. We are a revengeful society. How many of you reacted in some way this last week when you heard that Bill Cosby was released for prison from all the things that he did? You wanted to go and do justice on your own, didn't you? We're a revengeful people. It's very difficult because it forces us to consider our hypothetical ways or hypocritical ways, not actually the opposite of hypothetical, our hypocritical ways. It forces us to consider our hypocritical ways. It's also difficult because it attacks our weakness and makes us feel like we're going to lose out or sometimes allow ourselves to be taken advantage of. If I go to this person in grace, I'm going to be taken advantage of again. If I help this person, it's going to be taken advantage of me. But it's also very beneficial as a rule in our lives. It shows us that we understand the gospel altogether. When it becomes easy to live your life gracefully towards others, it should encourage you that you have a good understanding of the gospel. It's also very beneficial because it shows our likeness to Christ's character, remembering what he was about to do, For his people. It's beneficial because it makes us do the right thing no matter what anyone else may do. It's beneficial because it keeps us from allowing others to run our lives by their wrong conduct. Whatever they do, we're going to do the righteous thing. As difficult as it is, but as beneficial it is to our soul, it's very beneficial because it makes us concentrate on acting rather than merely on reacting. We do for the sake of the gospel rather than sit and observe. And it's very beneficial because it keeps us focused on being holy and righteous. And lastly, it takes no notice or account of what others have done. The gospel is the good news that our holy God is not abandoning his people due to their sin, but has rescued them for himself through the death and resurrection of God the Son, Christ Jesus the Lord. Though men and women are separated, from God by their sin, it was the Holy Spirit that has awoken their souls to the reality and position of their sin and causes them to then turn and repent from their sin to a life of faith in Jesus as their only hope and Savior. And their grasp and understanding of that gospel makes it easy to hear this message to where we now have the fuel and the desire to go and do likewise. Let's pray to that end. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of your Son. And we thank you for, we are thankful for his testimony of reminding us of the gospel that you have given us, even as he's telling us to act in accordance with the gospel. Lord, we pray that we would be gospel people, that we would be gospel rehearsing people, that we would constantly remind ourselves and others of your grace and mercy towards us. We pray that you would give us courage to live out the application of this fully. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.